0: February 3rd, 1975. Next news as it happens, next scheduled news at 11 o'clock over WOR, Radio 710, The Talk of New York. character called Freddy the Walrus? You did know that? Oh, well, then there's no point in telling you about it. Rave reviews, by the way. You knew that? Yeah. Okay. I did. No, as a character part, I, I must concede that uh, it uh, was a principal, though. It was not necessarily the lead, although there were some scenes where the walrus was big, but I did play Freddy the Walrus. <laughs> Uh, oh, we're going to have to answer for a lot, I'll tell you. Uh, before we uh, get uh, too deeply involved in uh, the aesthetics of existence tonight, I would like to... Uh, you mean you're not interested in the aesthetics of existence? Why, I hope so. For heaven's sakes, what else is there? As uh, Marcel Proust said, all is... Uh, 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 oh, what the hell did he say... Uh, Uh, doggone, it's on the tip of my thing here. Oh, oh, uh, you don't know who Proust was? Oh, sure you do. Used to do the news on Channel 2. Yeah, don't you remember? They had that, uh, weather lady came out with the pink tights. Yeah, big nose, that's right. big beak. Used to call him Beaky Proust. Uh, would you please give me a little beak music there, please, if you will. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Yeah. Here we go now. Here's the ti <laughs> t t t t t You like that? I right, you like that, huh? It's good for the sinuses. <laughs> I just had to do that. <laughs> you know, I, I really haven't for a long time. I haven't uh, played any real good stuff, you know. I mean, I'm talking about I haven't picked up my axe. Played you some stuff here. All right, how about uh, give me a uh, cut one on that same side, please, if you will. I just feel like it, and I don't care whether you like it or not. What is today? Hmm. Nobody knows. That's okay. That's what I like, timelessness. I really do. I like people who can shuffle off the great chains of time. <laughs> sing it out, gang. Come on, sing it. Bring it up there. Sing it out. Let's hear it. You're singing about your land and mine. Yes. Sooner or later, you'll know the generals. Boom, boom, boom. With uh, so many new kinds of tires coming out, maybe you're puzzled about making the right choice. Oh, we have a solution. Surprise. It's your general tire specialist, of course. Trained to handle all your tire needs. In fact, any kind of needs. You've got marital problems, you can out and talk to them. Automotive service problems, he'll handle them all. Your general tire specialist is just one reason why, sooner or later, you'll own generals. You'll see him soon. See Harold, the general tire company on Clinton Avenue in Newark. That's a very fashionable neighborhood. Bring it up and sing the song as you drive in. Sooner or later, you'll own the generals. Yeah, yeah. Sooner or later, you'll own the generals. I love that song. Just a great song. Hey, by the way, somebody wrote me a note and says that uh, did you know that America? The other day, I got into a thing on the air here about uh, about a salute to money. You mm-hmm. Um, We should have a stamp that salutes money, the collecting of money, you know, one of the great American hobbies. And um, I was talking about all the great bills, the fantastic bills. You ever seen a $1,000 bill? Nobody nobody knows what's on on the $1,000 bill, whose picture's on the $1,000 bill. Well, did you know that there's a $500 million bill? That is the truth. A $500 million bill. Now, uh, (laughs) there are only two of them in existence. And you just ain't going to break that down at the chock full of nuts. You walk in, you know, and you lay that on that lady back there handing out the brownies. And, uh, you know, you may just wind up buying the whole chain plus the New York Yankees. Hey, I've got a great idea, you know. I just came up with it. Did you... you, did you hear that Charlie Finley is thinking of selling the A's, the Oakland A's? Yes, he announced that. Well, I thought it was a great idea. Why should, why should the New York Yankees always try to get the, uh, the manager of the A's to come work for them? Why don't they buy the A's and bring them here to New York? We'd have a pennant winner right for starters, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then send the Yankees back out there. You know, let Charlie, let well, Charlie, well, let Dick Williams manage them out there. You know. See how good he does with uh, Horace Clark, you know? But uh, the fact is, uh, it would be kind of a... Gee, that would make a wonderful gift for somebody. You know, buy me A's. Wouldn't it, though? Hmm. Anybody out there thinking of giving me a gift, I'd love to have that. That's about the only gift that would really bring the roses to my cheeks. You know, really great. And I'd buy myself a pair of Spike shoes. Of course, if you're... You know, I've waited for Finley to do that. You know, Finley... Finley uh, has tested every baseball precept there is and proved that he's always right He always wins. (laughs) What would happen if opening day comes and Finley himself decides he is going to play second base? Well, you know, what could they say? I mean, he owns the ball club. You know, is there any rule that says you can't play uh, because you're 68 years old and got arthritis? Is there any rule that says that? If if so, that rule is absolutely unconstitutional. It is... uh, you know, making a clear demarcation point against people with arthritis who are 68 years old. No way. I mean, what could stop him? He could make a shambles out of baseball in a week, especially if he hit 300. I mean, <laughs> everyone, listen, you you think that's funny? Uh, everybody lashes. Oh, come on, come on. You know, there's a very famous story about just exactly that kind of thing one time happened. And uh, it's it's a famous story it happened in the early days of major league baseball now these were ball players i don't think it was the early days you know no no these were ball players and there was a guy at that time i believe it was louisville yeah louisville at that time was in the majors and uh there was a sports writer who was relentlessly attacking the ball team he was a louisville sports writer, and he just relentlessly just really blasting them all the time and in those days, this, the press box was really a box. You know, where they get the idea, you know, the word press box that they used all the time is really not a box anymore. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a stand, little, little uh, stands, uh, kind of like a little glass thing that sticks out under the upper deck usually. And certainly it's not a box. But uh, the reason that they call the press box the press box was that in early days of sports coverage, they actually had a box that the guy sat in and it was a little, uh, just a box. It had a little railing around it, and it had was wooden railing in the middle of the stands, and there he was. Uh, the press guys would squat right in the middle of the crowd. You know, the crowd's all around him, and they're sitting there, and they got their typewriters or whatever it is, see? And uh, so, naturally, they were themselves the butt of considerable yelling. So if, <laughs> if, uh, if you had written an angry column, you know, denouncing uh, somebody's favorite second baseman, as being a bum, a clod, a fathead, and a phoning. Wow, uh, five minutes later, you're sitting out at the ballpark, and the guys are throwing beer at you. What do you know? All that kind of, you know what, the writers take this all the time. So anyway, this is a famous historical case. This guy was relentlessly riding the ball team. Well, uh, here it is now. It's like the third inning, and somebody got hurt out on the field. And the manager, the people yelling and hollering, and particularly the guy that was hurt, the guy that was hurt in this ball game, was the guy that this writer had been riding just totally, constantly. And uh, he was an infielder, by the way, so they riding him like mad. So at that point, uh, the crowd is yelling and hollering, and they all turn up. See, now the guy's gotten hit, he's gotten hurt. So they all turn up and they start hollering at the guy in the press box. Yeah, how do you like that? He's out there nice, the hurt. Hey, yeah, you know, what do you think of that now? So at that point, the manager walks right over to the stand and says, all right, smart guy, you've been writing all that stuff. How about, let's see how good you can do. All right. That's actually happened. Now, this is part of baseball history. This is not a fanciful story. It is an absolute, this really happened. At which point, here with the crowd, was starting, to, yeah, go ahead. Let's see how good you can do. Oh, yeah, you're probably working typewriter. You know, you phony. You know, at that point, he gets up, and he says, all right. He climbs over the box amid the flying pop bottles and stuff, goes down on the field, and they didn't even have a suit for him, at which point he rolls his pants up. That's <laughs> what he really did. He takes a glove, goes out, and plays the entire rest of the ball game, goes two for three, believe it or not, fielded his position flawlessly, and went back up at the end of the game. People are yelling, goes, Bob, and starts to write up the game. Well, you never know, <laughs> that's an absolute true story. <laughs> well, I'll tell you another one if you want to hear another story like that. I, I, I don't, you know, this is a kind of a, kind of a, uh, I didn't intend to do this tonight, but I might as well since we got off on this. Uh, that have you ever seen uh, people, you know, do a thing like that? It's totally, un, completely unpredictable, uh, almost a, almost a, Uh, a miraculous performance under totally, uh, you know, negative conditions, which reminds me, this is W.O.R. New York. Uh, (laughs) I was referring to negative modulation gang out there. Any of you know anything about the technique? I'm not, you know, there's nothing to do with the whole total concept of this beautiful station. No way. It's the 75th annual Greater New York Automobile Show, February 1st through 9th at the New York Coliseum. See the newest American models, sports cars, exotic imports, classics. Win thousands of prizes, Porsche Classic Car Kits, a genuine 1900 horseless carriage, Corningware, a Harley Davidson. Win theater tickets and meet the stars of Broadway's leading shows. The Automobile Show, February 1st through 9th at the New York Coliseum. Once again, I want to tell you about the Blue Ribbon at 145 West 44th Street here in New York. Uh, I am delighted to observe that there is a resurgence of interest in German food. Have you noticed all these pseudo-German food restaurants opening up all over town? If you'd like to try the real thing, and I'm serious because I've gone to this place for years, ever since I've uh, been working here in the Midtown area. The Blue Ribbon is on 44th Street, right off of 6th Avenue, between Broadway and 6th. And they're open Monday through Saturday from 11.30 in the afternoon. By the way, they're packed in the morning there for lunch until midnight after the show. And you can get in and get one of these fantastic German sliced apple pancakes. Fantastic with that dark beer. Wow. This is the Blue Ribbon at 145 West 44th Street. And By the way, one little note of interest. Uh, German tourists who come to New York invariably head for the Blue Ribbon. You know what they say about Chinese restaurants if you see the Chinese sitting around eating? Well, in the Blue Ribbon, real German tourists come in and sit down for a a dish of fine sauerbraten. This is the Blue Ribbon. Remember the name. It is an extraordinary restaurant, and it's about probably 50 years old or better. It's a great German restaurant. Blue Ribbon, 145 West 44th Street, Monday through Saturday from 1130 a.m. until midnight. And almost any time around nine o'clock in the evening, you'll find me sitting in the corner drinking dark beer. But nevertheless, this—I'll tell you another story. You want to hear a really funny one? I was out in—I uh, was out in uh, Cincinnati. Now you won't. This—this this is almost an unbelievable. But this is actually what happened. And I'm telling you again, a true story. This happened in Cincinnati. Now Cincinnati has a big opera company, and uh, they're very famous. The Cincinnati Zoo Opera is a big, big deal, and as a matter of fact, most of the people who perform the Cincinnati Zoo Opera during the summertime are people from the Met. This is big time opera. Well, uh, they come out there and it's always sold out, you know, tremendous uh, sale of tickets and it's very social and very elegant, and people sit out there in this beautiful band shell in the zoo. It's actually done in the zoo at night, and it's really beautiful. And all around you is as, as, as they're doing Lohengrin or something. You can hear the sound of lions roaring. Yeah, they will roar. And once in a while, when the when the fiddles or something hit a certain note, you can hear all the seals. Ooh, ooh, ooh! Seals are barking like crazy, <laughs> and, and it's kind of great. See, but nevertheless, uh, this guy that I knew, a friend of mine, I'll have to tell you story. He was he was a big, uh, big man. I mean, physically a big guy, big guy, and. Uh, an interesting guy, very interesting man, and he was in construction. Now, when you say in construction, his family was in construction. They were, you know, big construction people out there, and of course his family was very social, and they were on the board of directors of the Zoo Opera. You know, they were involved in the whole thing. Every year they put together the Zoo Opera, and he was uh, he was kind of interested in showbiz a little bit, this guy. He, he kind of interest, was interested in it, and he, uh, he had a... Big, heavy chest, big guy, and he was so, I'd say probably at that time, possibly in his early thirties. But he was big. He was about as big as, uh, say, uh, your average uh, defensive lineman in the NFL. Yeah, he was big, really big. He was about six feet five, six feet six, weighed about uh, probably two fifty, but big, a great big guy, and uh, very funny guy. But he was in construction. Well, they <laughs> they had the whole program set for the year he'd been working he was involved in the program there and uh, he was all set and so th- they had all the great operas they were doing operas like uh, old Wagner they were doing uh, things like uh, uh, well Lohengrin was one they did that year they did Faust uh, they did things like uh, old the Barber of Seville uh, uh, classic operas so, and of course every time they did a classic opera they would bring out the cast from New York the Met who uh, had performed this opera many times, and, and Roberta Peters and all these people were out there. So anyway, it so happened that the, here they were. They had this this week that they were performing or uh, rehearsing this opera, which was to be done beginning the following Saturday. It was like, say, on a on a Friday the week before, they started to rehearse this opera, and they would go down every day. Well, all of a sudden, right in the middle of rehearsals, fantastic, uh, the... the the base, the basso profundo. And they were doing Faust, by the way. If you know anything about Faust, this is about the devil. I mean, uh, uh, out comes Mephistopheles, and he comes roaring out of the stage in a tremendous flash of light and, and the smoke and steam. And it you been a tremendous scene where he, he suddenly appears when Dr. Faustus has says, I will sell my soul to the devil. And at that point... He looks up to the to heaven or something, and he shakes his fist. a great Germanic legend, Goethe And he shakes his fist at the devil, and he says, I will sell my soul. And there's a great big uproar. <laughs> and out of the stage, and with a great gout of flame and fire, comes the devil. Says, says, aha, you've made a deal. Well, he doesn't exactly say that. <laughs> In fact, aha, all right, I'll call you on it. And at that point, Dr. Faustus is presented with the great... Uh, uh, with the great moral problem of the age, you see, whether to sell your soul to become 22 again and make the scene with this unbelievable chick which he has just met, or uh, be the great philosopher that he is and continue to expound upon morality uh, till his dying days—about 90, see? Well, now, there's not many of us would have to question twice what we take. I mean, if the devil showed up, I think you'd—you uh, would at least give him a good hearing, wouldn't you? I mean, after all, I believe in listening to every man. I believe in uh, I'm not going to reject anything out of hand. And uh, you may not go entirely with all the stuff that he asked, but uh, I think you may make some kind of a deal, right? Well, this devil, of course, in this case, uh, offered unbelievable, uh, great, great uh, side of benefits. He, uh, he said, if you sell your soul, friend, I'll lay all kinds of stuff on you that you wouldn't believe. You know, I once played this role. That's why I know this role very well. Or did you know that on the New York stage I played I played Mephistopheles in a play. Uh, if you're curious, you can go back in your your theatrical history. You'll find it. Unless it was a regular production, it was a a, a play called uh, M. And then it was later changed. The play was later changed to a Banquet for the Moon, and uh, it played uh, here in New York and got good reviews. By the way. And I, my, the role I played was Mephistopheles, <laughs> who, by the way, in this case, came out of the audience, a very interesting idea, where he was, everybody was watching this play, see, uh, the, the way it looked like, the way the play was written, the, the play was way ahead of its time, actually, so, uh, the, the people are in the audience, you know, just like you go to the theater, but unbeknownst to them, there I was, sitting there in a seat, just like everybody else, you know, I just looked like a theater goer sitting there in a seat, and, uh, and with a, with a girl, you see, there was a woman with me, girl, and I'm sitting in the seat. And uh, up on the stage, I don't know why I'm telling you this story. Are you interested in that? What how this thing was done? Up on the stage, you saw what looked like a chemical laboratory. It was a laboratory. It was somebody's lab had the lab tables, had all kinds of uh, retorts and uh, Bunsen burners and stuff. When it was dark and flickering, and you see this old man, really an old man, sitting there, and he looked like. Uh, he looked like Einstein, actually, that white hair, a little, a little gnarled, wrinkled face, and he was really very old. And he's he's unhappy, really unhappy. He's so unhappy that you can see he's in the depth of depression, and that's the way the play opens. He's sitting up there, and he's he's looking at a copy of Time magazine, and he's on the cover of Time. Let's open there. You see his picture right there, and he's looking at it, and you can see him. It's him on the cover of Time. And uh, you can see that the uh, that the that the headline on the on the magazine says something about father of the A bomb or something. He was like he was like the guy, one of the chief scientists that created the A bomb, and now he was being riven by great uh, great uh, conscience stricken. He was conscience stricken, and uh, at least that's what you thought. Remembering that's the point of the play. At least that he because he kept saying that. Oh God, what have I done? And he said, oh, boy, I've killed millions of innocent people. And he was up there, and suddenly, he leaps up. He said, like, I can't go on. It's a very dramatic moment. He leaps up, and he takes what looks like a knife from the laboratory table there. it's uh, It's got a drawer. He opens this drawer, and he takes this knife out, and with that, he just slashes his wrist. Zap, zap, very dramatically. And blood flows out all over the place, and he hangs down over the sink. And at that minute I, out in the audience, say, Hey, what what cut it out? What are you doing? And everybody turns around and looks at you. (laughs) Obviously, hey, come on, what are you doing up there? And at that point he doesn't even notice. He's just, he just hanging over the sink, and I jump up, and I run up, and I says, now, wait a minute, let's take a look at you. And you know, I run up on, the, up on the stage, and people are all looking, and the guy runs right on the stage. He says, "No, well, wait a minute, let me, do, Lord, good God, you, you cut your wrist, see? It's a very dramatic scene. It's like somebody has taken over, and the guy looks up, what, what, are you, what are you doing up here? And I says, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on a minute there. Now, just a minute, then. I, I take this, this uh, bag I've got with me, I've got like a briefcase that I carry up on the stage. And I say I'm a doctor. I'll take care of you. See, so at that point I bandage this guy, and he's <laughs> he's palsied. I want to kill myself. What are you doing? I no Wait a minute. Wait a minute now. <laughs> Wait a minute. I don't know why I'm telling you all this, but uh, this was it. Sounds like an interesting play, doesn't it? Wait a minute. And he sits down. He's shaking, and his blood all over the place, just all over. It squirts up on the walls. It's really dramatically done. They had a they had a special kind of device that when when this guy cut his wrist. You know, sometimes when you cut your wrist. If you really do, you know, you sever a very main artery. and Boy, the stuff, your blood will fly. So that's what they did. He cut his wrist and the blood had flown all over the back of the stage. It was really a gruesome scene. So I'm sitting there with him. And I said, now, wait a minute now. Just a minute. The old man is shaking. He says, I have, I've, I, I've, I've been, I've done terrible things. And I want mankind to. He's going on about mankind. All of a sudden, this guy says, Now, wait a minute here, just a minute. Just a minute now. I sympathize with you, but you know what your problem is? The old man looks up. You know what your problem is? You just never swung once in your whole life. That's what your real problem is. You come out with all this morality stuff. He says, What do you mean? I'll tell you what I mean. How would you like to be 22 again? I really mean it. How would you like to be 22 again? Knowing all you know now. How would you like to do that? The guy looks at him. It's an insane idea. That's ridiculous. He says, no, no. How would you? I'm asking. How would you like to do this? I can arrange it for you to be 22. I, I'll guarantee you I can do it. Well, do I have to tell you? He was willing to sign. And he did sign. <laughs> and the rest of the play is about what happened. And it was fantastic. Now, uh, Mephistopheles is a great role. So, anyway, uh, going back to the Cincinnati Opera. Didn't think I was going to tell you that, did you? <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, no. You're dating with a pro here, friends. Oh, no. So going back to the opera, here they were. It was like it, it was like about Wednesday or something, and they were supposed to open the opera Friday when all of a sudden the guy who had brought in from New York, this very famous Mephistopheles, had an absolutely unbelievable... I saw him. I, I couldn't believe it. He had a case of laryngitis... That suddenly hit him so bad he could not even talk and whisper. He's good. <laughs> Point is, and, and they had doctors and, and that was it, man. Well, now, Mephistopheles is, is a three-man opera. You don't drop one of them. I mean, if if you have a cast of thousands, you could drop two or three hundred and get by with it, you know. But this was a cast of three. There <laughs> went there was a tenor who sings uh, who sings the the title role of faust faustus mephistopheles and then there was the girl uh, right well so they are really frantic you know they had a whole thing and they they wire all over the country they cannot get at this short notice a faustus or rather a mephistopheles you know mephistopheles don't come quick i mean there ain't many of us around so they, they frantic. Well, here is what happened. I'm going to tell you what happened because it's not going to seem it's, it's going to seem unreal to you, but it, it seemed unreal to everybody there at the time that here they had this great symphony orchestra and uh, it was a true you know whole hundred piece orchestra, which was fantastic. And the conductor was Fausto Pleva. Well, it was a great conductor. So uh, the the opera board is now in shambles. they're, they're Because here they've got this opera set, and they only had a six-week season. Something like you You can't knock out a whole week; they're going to be in trouble. They had sold 12 million seats and all that for this whole week of Faust, so total sold out, sellout. So at that point, uh, in one hectic session, my friend gets up and says, "Look, I'll give it a try." Well, now (laughs) you know. I just want to say, that's kind of an unusual thing to say. So everybody sort of, you know, here it was night, and the orchestra was rehearsing the music, and he says, well, I'll, I'll fake it. I'll, I'll give it a try, you know. And, and he certainly looked the part. He was six feet six, weighed 250 pounds. And he had these great beetling brows. And he had, like many really big people, he was big, he had a deep voice. He really had a tremendous deep voice. And, in fact, for years, just as sort of a kick, he used to play around in in various little dramas around town. Remember, he's a big real wealthy uh, construction executive. He used to play a little theater drama things once in a while, just for kicks, and uh, he would do a little part. And his voice was really tremendous, but he had this deep speaking voice. So at that point, uh, since he was also uh, a very important guy on the board, you know, you know, so he goes down to the to the rehearsal hall and and. Uh, at that point, he goes up on a stage. It's a towering character, say, and uh, he, he they play the music of this opening thing that he sings, uh, where Faust comes up uh, and he says, "I will sell my soul to the devil." And boom, there's a great roar of the timpani and a flash of light, and the lightning roars through the scenery, and the stage gets dark, and this huge figure comes roaring out of the uh, right out of the ground. With a with a cape, and he's got this black cape with a blood red lining. because goes roaring out. Well, at that point, Faust in the in the opera, he he, he sings what amounts to a squeak. You know, and nothing in the opera is that simple. I mean, he you know, goes something like that. You know, all in tune. It's all done in German. You know, he sings something like, uh, "What the hell is this?" And at that point, the arches. <laughs> Octavish mephistopheles He sings mephistopheles And whoa, yelling and hollering, a little bit more thunder. And he sings this thing about blood. I i have come to make a deal with you. Well, that's a, one of the great, fantastic moments in all of opera, if you've ever seen it. It's a gasser. Well... So they they played the music and 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 Sam says, "Well, now wait a minute." He says, "I uh, he he spoke a little German. He took some in high school. He's a high school German, a very well, very well educated guy." Uh, so I think he went to Yale, but nevertheless, he was a very well educated man. But he 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 spoke just a little German, enough to to uh, to get by in uh, you know third year high school or something. So he he hears the music. Remember, he's never sung opera before. At that point. The the, the the conductor who sings the part for him. He goes, Oh, he and he's reading the music. And at that point, Sam, when they play the symphony, he goes, Ah, kids, and the place was dumbfounded. It was fantastic. Well, I've told you the truth, it's unbelievable to hear. He, he he faked that song so well that that the opera singers, the ones who were playing the the tenor and the girl, were well they were thrown. You know they they must, they thought this guy must have been secretly sneaking off to uh, to uh, Milan, Italy or something, uh, singing at La Scala on the side. You know? <laughs> you really? Well, man, he figured so. at that point, they had a hurried conference and they decided they were going to go with it. And so, for the next two days, he frantically rehearsed with the orchestra. And he had a great mind, a quick study, too. And he was able to learn the part in about three or four days. And they opened that night, and they didn't say anything about it. just said, this. <laughs> he, by the way, he picked another name uh, to use. He did not use his name, which was used locally. He picked another name. And uh, nobody knew the difference. was a fantastic performance. The next day, there were great reviews. <laughs> and from that time on, he sang Mephistopheles for three or four nights, and the, the real Mephistopheles came back, and it was hardly a beat missed. If anything, he was more impressive because he was about six inches taller than the other Mephistopheles, more commanding. But the other guy sang a little better, but not much. That was what was so scary. I happened to be there every night. The performances went on. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. So one night I said to, I said to him, I said, how the hell did you do this? He said, well, just faked it. I just faked it. Yeah. Well, yes, of course, that's way he talked. Yes, after all, not many people speak very good German there in the audience. And uh, I felt that I could handle it. Well, that's the time when you run up against total self-confidence very confusing <laughs> well I, I, to give you the, now you wouldn't believe that a thing like that could happen in opera no well, it did I saw it and, uh, and now that uh, well as a matter of fact is a very famous story that also happened in the major leagues do you know that a, a preacher from uh, Philadelphia pitched in the major leagues with not one day of prior uh, organized baseball experience and it's in the record book. Pitched. Now, I would like to tell you that he struck out 22, and uh, no way. In fact, he held the record for a long time with the most number of runs scored <laughs> in any one inning against the pitcher. <laughs> but uh, he was out there. Now, uh, I, this the case of this guy, I'll tell you one more little thing about this singer, the, the non-singer, actually. He was such a success that he gave up the entire whole scene of, uh, of uh, construction and the whole world of business, came to New York, and within two weeks opened in a Broadway play, because he was so imposing. You walk into this guy, you, you had to hear him, you had to listen to him when he walked into an audition, I mean. And within two weeks, he was in a major Broadway play, was a smash hit, and he's been making movies ever since. What's his name? None of your damn business. Now uh, he happens to have been at that time a good friend of mine. In fact, when I first came to New York, I stayed with him for a while. He had an apartment over here on the West Side, over on uh, Central Park West. But uh, now, how's that for a, for a, for a tour de force? And uh, <laughs> well, you know, you see this happen once in a while. I uh, I saw a guy one time. I'll never forget uh, this happening once. Uh, it even happens technically the technical situation I saw a guy one time and this was in the army we had uh, we had a very complex radar setup. I was in the radar very complex stuff and uh... we (laughs) was kind of embarrassing we we had uh, we were having a lot of problems with a very intricate circuit known as the keyer the keyer did you ever hear of a keyer now if you don't know anything about radar uh, there is a radar is a series of pulses uh, pulses that are sent out which hit uh, a reflecting object and bounce back and there's a finite time differential there and of course the time varies according to the distance that the thing is away from you that's what radar really basically is if you can measure that time distance you know how far away it is and you know how fast exactly how fast radio waves travel which is the speed of light by the way so uh, we had this Kier. Now, the kier is a device which cuts off and on the radar set itself. It's what causes these pulses. It's a keying circuit. And it's a very complex thing. We were having a lot of problems, and uh, real problems. Well, that uh, we, we had 32 guys. They were all trained, highly trained, like two years of, of electronics work, highly trained, really, really trained electronics men. So at that point... Uh, we were having problems with this particular keel, so it, the, the whole the whole thrust of the argument after about a week of trying to get this thing working, we are always having problems, was to just get rid of this whole damn keel and and requisition another keyer you know, and just put another keyer in it, which is the way the army does it, you know, they do it with broad strokes. Well, about two days before we were about to ship this thing back, there was a second lieutenant who was in another platoon, and he. He goes, second lieutenant, you know, first of all, you never think of a second lieutenant as knowing anything, for starters, uh, much less uh, how a keyer works. So the second lieutenant comes over, and he says, uh, you guys have trouble with the keyer? And uh, somebody says, yes, sir. He says, oh, what's it doing? And uh, we said, well, we're having problems that uh, it's not stable. We have all kinds of instability problems. It keeps wandering all over the place. And he says, oh, hmm you mind if I take a look at it? And here the thing was open. It was all ripped up anyway. It was wide open. So he go ahead, take a look at it. But, you know, watch out for those interlocks, baby, sir. Uh, (laughs) We don't want to have an I-and-I second lieutenant around the place. He looks in this thing, he's messing around. He says, huh, huh, very interesting. So at that point, our first lieutenant comes over. Lieutenant Cherry says, excuse me, uh, lieutenant, uh, do you have any... uh, any experience in the King equipment? She says, oh, no, no. So I used to fix radios when I was a kid. I used to fix radios when I was a kid. Here here, here was a, a crowd of 32 highly trained professional radio. I used to fix radios. Yeah, I used to fix radios. See, I was just taking a look at this thing. And uh, the lieutenant cherry says, well, uh, you know, go ahead. You know, but don't don't mess around with it. This uh, you know, you, this, this stuff is not fixing radios. You know, this is not a, a Sears Roebuck radio. He's looking down in there, and uh, so he calls me over along with another guy, and he says, uh, "What what is that that circuit right there?" I said, "Well, it's a, that's actually a, a that's a second buffer stage. It's a, it's a buffer stage between the uh, see the the." Uh, Pulse is actually generated with a crystal generator over here. This is the crystal generator with two buffer stages and the driver. This is a buffer stage here. Buffer stages. Uh-huh. Just, uh huh. Do you have a? Let me. Let me. Uh, he said, give, give me a meter, will you? And at that point, he somebody hands him a volt ohm meter, and he, he's messing around with the meter. Then he says, "He says, you know, this this uh, cathode resistor you got here, it's marked two thousand ohms." Uh, that thing doesn't—it uh, doesn't check out. It checks out at about 22,000 ohms. It's marked wrong. I so, said, so "Wait a minute, let me take a look at that." So I take the, the meter, and sure enough, here is a 2,000 ohm resistor, and it's—it's—it's—it's it's, 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 it's marked 2,000 ohms. It's a high-precision resistor. The damn thing measures 22,000 ohms. It was marked wrong. So I said. Uh, Hey, Elkins, will you bring me one of them 2,000-ohm resistors from the keying uh, keying drawer over there? And uh, Elkins comes over with a 2,000-ohm resistor, and I just take the soldering iron. I soldered the one out. You know, I have a 22,000-ohm. I put in a real 2,000-ohm resistor. And at that point, he says, Hey, Elkins, I'm going to fire it up. Will you fire up the power supply? So he's running the power supply, and I turn on the keyer. I don't have to tell you what happened. It ran like Billy B. Dan, this is about a $12,000, $12 million piece of equipment. I said to him, I said, Lieutenant, I said, I, 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 I'm just curious, you know, this thing, did you ever see one of these before? You he said, no, no. I said, I've always been curious. That's why I came over here. He said, you know, I'm over here with the low-speed uh, uh, field radio platoon over here, and I'm just curious about this equipment. I said, you sure you never saw this? He says, no, no, I never saw it before. He said, but I used to fix radios when I was a kid. I said, oh, well, that explains it, of course. Yes, sir, I understand that. Well, uh, thank you very much, sir. It's very good. Uh, next time we have trouble, we'll call you. He says, oh, any time you walked away. Now, I'll guarantee you, he had no idea what he did. Had <laughs> no idea. And, if, if, you know, no way for him to tell me why he decided that that resistor was marked wrong. That was one of those unbelievable guesses. With maybe 18, 20 million resistors in this <laughs> in this piece of gear. That became a legend. Became a legend. As a matter of fact, uh, whenever anybody used to fix things, we need, you know, pull off a good job at our company from that day on. This went on for years. When somebody would actually fix up like fantastically complicated uh, uh, ring UHF high frequency microwave oscillator. He'd come down, he'd actually fix it. Somebody said, Hey, that was really good, Sergeant. He said, Used to fix radios when I was a kid. No problem. <laughs> Would you please bring it up for me? Now I suppose you, a lot of you people wonder why I'm talking like this. Well, I'm not actually Gene Shepherd. I'm a guy that wrote him a letter, and I told him I did the, a great Gene Shepherd invitation, and I've been doing the show for the last three nights. He's coming back tomorrow night. It's the first time I've been on the radio. There's nothing to it. Oh, W O R New York. Stay tuned for In Conversation.